HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Consider Bardwell Farm in Vermont, a producer of award-winning handmade cheese from goat and cow milk. For more information, visit considerbardwellfarm.com. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. Uh, this is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. Uh, we're going to be talking today about um, a very old crop that is suddenly new again and much in the news. My guest today on the phone is Doug Fine. Uh, Doug began his career as a freelance journalist for such organizations as the Washington Post, Salon, U.S. News and World Report, Sierra Wired, Outside, NPR, and many other venues. His books include Not Really an Alaskan Mountain Man, Farewell, My Subaru, and Too High to Fail, and when he's not globetrotting to report on sustainability, drug policy, and hemp's return, our subject today, Doug Fine lives on the solar-powered Funky Butte Ranch. (laughs) Uh, And his most recent book, which is what we're talking about, is Hemp Bound, Dispatches from the Front Lines of the Next Agricultural Revolution. It is published by Chelsea Green, just came out. Um, And it even has a blurb from Willie Nelson on the jacket, which says, this is a blueprint for the America of the future. Doug, could you possibly be any cooler than this? Oh, my gosh. Uh, That's the nicest introduction ever. Thanks uh, for having me, Katie. Um, (laughs) I... I wish I were a little cooler. It's very hot here in southern New Mexico at this time of year. We're waiting for monsoon climate change, which is why we need hemp. That's right. We need hemp. So first, let's start the program by explaining what is the difference between uh, the agricultural hemp you write about and the medicinal hemp so many of us know and love as, uh, you know, a self-medicating resort that you make, you know, measure that you take when you really need self-medication. Well, self-medication, because of the absurdity of cannabis prohibition, it's a long been really prescribed by doctors and healers, you know, not just people self-medicating. Um, we're just in, a, in a, the tail end of a dark prohibitionary period as far as that goes. But the difference is, okay, so what we're talking about today is hemp is any variety of the cannabis plant that has 0.3% or less THC, the psychoactive component cannabis plant. So it's as inert as any other agricultural crop. That's how it's regulated everywhere mm-hmm. in the world and soon will be here. 
But it's the cannabis sativa, which I thought was interesting because, I mean, I know from, uh, you know, <clears throat> my uh, long history <clears throat> of being a hippie that there's, you know, indica, sativa, there's all these different types of pot, but what makes this, it's just the lower, they can just breed it so it has a lower THC level? Now, Katie, I just want to pause before we go into the answer to this question, question to tell you that what makes this interview so fun for me is um, a lot of times the discussion of my my previous two books have both been about drug policy. So I've been looking into drug policy for and the cannabis plant specifically for the last five years. Right. And the previous book was called Too High to Fail, as you mentioned, and it's uh, a sustainable model for uh, cannabis consumer. It's based on a great pilot program in Minnesota County, California, um, community benefiting. It was a, it was a complete success. Um, so, um, I have, a, you know, I tend to get the, the interviews often will blend, but not this seamlessly and not right from the beginning. Um, and so it's a great question. You're really asking a botanical question yes. and the, the, the way the genetics of it work. And this actually answers another question that I'm often asked, which is, is it possible to confuse the two plants? Um, do they look the same? Um, silly questions that. We have to ask here that no place else in the billion-dollar industry would even think about asking. <laughs> yeah, because um, legions of school children are not rummaging through the fields in Canada where they're growing hemp, at least that I've heard of, right? So no. <laughs> clearly There's it been, doesn't look that much similar. <laughs> there have been zero cases of confusion in Canada's um, now 16-year-old modern industry that is growing 24% um, per year it's it's something our farmers really are aware of and are trying to get into the profit. Um, but back to the, the genetics, um, it's a very interesting topic, the genetics, partly because on the hemp side, we've lost what was the world-leading germplasm, the, the Kentucky hemp seed, um, mm. and we have to rebuild mm. now from foreign cultivars. Uh, we did it once 150 years ago, <laughs> so I'm sure we can do it again. But um, the, the, the short answer is the genetics are so blended amongst cannabis plants of all types, mm -hmm. um, that they're, it's difficult even these days in most varieties you can find extreme uh, pure phenotypes of a sativa or, or indica, certainly, but, um, or ruderalis, which is commonly what hemp was, had been thought of, a third branch. Mm. But in truth, there are industrial cannabis cultivars, hemp cultivars, with no THC, um, that are uh, in use somewhere in the world for something, fiber or seed oil, that technically would be considered a cannabis sativa. They just spread the THC out of it, but it made great fiber, or it grew really fast, or it made great seed for seed oil. So um, it, everything basically is blended, but it also explains why you can never confuse the two crops, psychoactive and hemp, because female cannabis, psychoactive cannabis, is the market. That's all anybody wants. It's a very right. valuable plant. And hemp is both genders, and if they're grown within a few miles of each other, um, pollen from the hemp will create seeds in the psychoactive cannabis crop and ruin it immediately. So yeah. they, they can be grown in the same. Yeah, that sounds like, uh, that would be a, a, you know, a Humboldt County's worst nightmare, right? So <clears throat> tell us why hemp is uh, making such a big comeback right now. It's got an incredible, I mean, according to your book, it has a, an extraordinary array of uses both uh, in food and fiber and building materials. Give us a quick rundown of what those uses are. Yeah, and events are, are, are uh, unfolding at such an incredible pace incredible. right now. I mean, last week, a major battle was one where the state of Kentucky was allowed to import viable hemp seeds. Right. 
and uh, over DEA objections, and they, they took it to federal court. It, it's really astounding um, what's happening. Um, but the bottom line, here, uh, here we are. Let's all, you know, feel guilty about the fact that this is a capitalist society, even though um, everyone in the world is still giving up everything to get here. Um, our model's the best one out there. Um, so here it is. Farmers are planting hemp because... Canadian farmers today are profiting $300 per acre um, for the seed oil in a market that, as I said, is growing 24% per year. So let's do a little bit of math there. Since uh, the biggest seed oil processor in Canada, Sean Crew, uh, has oil Canada, uh, told me when I visited is now expanding to his fourth facility up there. Um, He's been in it since 1998. And he is such a big-time operation that he doesn't deal with farmers who cultivate less than 1,000 acres. Wow. Hemp seed oil. So if you're profiting to the tune of $300 an acre on a minimum of 1,000 acres, and they have that land up there in the Nebraska, North Dakota, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, that's $300,000 profit on a bridge crop. You can go other things on the same land in the same season. So uh, there's farmers making money, and Americans know it. That's why it's coming back. All the other magical uses we'll talk about today are because... It's making money for farmers. Yeah, it's it's a fantastic story. I mean, the idea of making three hundred dollars uh, an acre on a crop and profit, um, and compare that for us to say a corn or a soy crop, even with the price uh, props that we give them in the farm bill, what is it? It's like I don't know, twenty six dollars an acre or something like that. I mean, it's it's pathetic. Yeah, it yeah it varies um, to as much as ten times less. Then, of course, you know, the GMO cycle that does so much damage to soil, climate, and, you know, diet, humanity's health. Mm-hmm. Um, the, these are uh, uh, paying farmers a lot less. Um, I saw a South Dakota State University prediction that that state soy farmers are predicted this year to have a real good year at $71 profit per acre. Wow. So this is more than three times that. And it's basically the exact same... Uh, if you're talking South Dakota, then it's pretty much the same climate as Southern Manitoba, where you you were visiting Mr. Crew and his processing facilities, right? That, that's right, and that's important. Um, and Sean Crew knows it. When he, when I interviewed him, and this is in Hempfound, uh, his quote, he said, "I can't wait for you to have to legalize. The second you do, I'm parachuting my new processors down there. Grow all you can in North Dakota and South Dakota. We can't keep it. Keep, we can't keep up." So then I spoke to. Uh, you know, North Dakota officials about that who are so steamed about not being able to take part in this economic boom. We're down 1% of Americans farming now, 30% when hemp prohibition started in 1937. So, right. yeah, so the, it, it's important that those eco, that, that sort of biome is um, compatible because the Canadians know the cultivars that work in that soil. Mm-hmm. Or for farmers elsewhere, uh, like Colorado is now into their first commercial season. They're ahead of federal law, giving permits to their farmers to uh, cultivate commercially. Um, and, you know, they're dealing with that. They're relearning what will work here. But I, I have confidence in American uh, hard work and ingenuity. I think we'll, we're going to have a world-leading industry here very, very yeah, me too. I mean, certainly from reading your uh, your book, it certainly sounds like you'd be if you're in the farming business, you'd be an idiot not to 
<laughs> not to get away from corn and soy or at least start rotating hemp into your crop rotation, um, you'd be really, uh, you know, doing yourself a great disservice. So let's backtrack a little bit and talk about why hemp is so incredibly adaptable to so many different climates and also what it does to soil and, um, you know, in the wake of, of sort of climate change, why is hemp the answer in terms of our agriculture? And also, do we run a risk of monocropping with hemp that would be the same kinds of risks that uh, that are associated with uh, monocropping corn, soy, and sugar beets? So that, that I'll tie in that last question back to your first question. I'll answer the, yeah. that, that one first and, and say that, um, first of all, as long as we do what the Canadians did, which is from day one of their modern industry ban, even before it existed, um, and it doesn't yet, genetically modified, it's banned in Canada. As long as that happens, um, I'm, I'm fine with, with amber waves of GMO grain giving way to waving hands of green industrial hemp across America in shining sea because um, it is a bridge crop. It's good for soil. It's not, it's, a, it's not something that would do what the state corn monoculture has done. Um, however, we as consumers on the food side, which is just one part of this plant harvest, um, should, would do very well to only consume organically cultivated hemp for food products because, just as, you're, as you say, they, farmers can still, uh, if they want to cultivate other crops the same year, what if they cultivate a GMO crop? Your, your famous uh, phytoremediation or soil healing qualities in hemp are going to be leaching out the toxics uh, from some of the nasty things that go into pesticides and herbicides on genetically modified crops, for instance. And just generally working in thick soil, that's not the kind of food you want to eat. Right. Um, so we got to make sure we're consuming organic hemp. Now, on to your other question about, uh, um, you know, hemp's prospects and, and soil remediation. Ryan Laughlin is a total American hero. He, uh, he cultivated 60 acres on his family's federally subsidized uh, Springfield, Colorado ranch last year, right near Kansas. Very conservative. People think Obama's from Jupiter. Mm-hmm. Um, and they they get it about hemp. I didn't hear a negative voice about hemp down there because their reservoirs, uh, their uh, sorry, their aquifer, I call the aquifer is dying out. And Ryan proved last year, risking his family's 1,200 acres farm, that um, that it required hemp required half the water that the previous year's wheat crop did. Right. Huge news for farmers out there. Oh my Huge. god, it was so sick out there, um, like the Sahara Desert. So it, it, it really has these real qualities. Um, in hemp bound, I, re- I write about tri-cropping. What I want to see is a, a, a single community benefiting, community-owned, uh, you know, farming community-owned facility that at once processes a, a single hemp crop for nutritive seed oil and the other uses of the, of the, of the oil, uh, such as non-toxic. Such as non-toxic what? Your sound quality is not that great. Oh, sorry about that. Okay. Um, a non-toxic uh, uh, sealant, bio-sealant. Oh, sealant. Is, uh-huh. Cool. So it can um, be so both a, a it, so it can be an industrial, it has this oil itself has industrial applications as well as nutritional applications. Is that what you're saying? Yes, in fact, those two and people wondered about energy. Well, in in Hempfound, I do in fact take a hemp oil-powered limo ride. It's a really fun part oh, right. of the book. There's a video of it on my website as well, um, at dougfine.com. And uh, uh, because it, the part of the fun backstory is that it's uh, a limo, a 1979 Mercedes, purportedly owned once by uh, uh, 
Philippine dictator Ferdinand Marcos. Um, so it was a super fun day. Yeah, anyway. I remember him. <laughs> <laughs> I'm old enough to remember him. <laughs> and I, I'm rivaling Imelda in my collection of shoes right now. <laughs> <laughs> She was always my favorite dictator's wife, actually, because of that shoe fetish she has. <laughs> so you're saying that that you not only could drive in a car that was powered with hemp oil, and you yourself drive a car that's uh, biofuel, right? I and do. and uh, but you can also eat it, uh, and it, it you can also eat the seed cake, which is what you get after the, you press the oil out of it. That is also edible, or is that usually a livestock feed? It can be both. Um, the, you know, you see it a lot. There's a, at the Canadian uh, part of the International Space Station right now, they're officially supplied with a hemp cereal called Holy Crap. And um, <laughs> so that also, that'll come from that hemp heart or, seed, or protein cake and stuff, but it makes a fantastic feed. Just on two or three acres here at my ranch in southern New Mexico, and yeah. you did pronounce it correctly, the Funky Butte Ranch. Nice going, Katie. Yeah, yeah. Um, I can read. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be surprised. Um, well, I mean, it's, I mean, the temptation to say funky butt, of course, is obvious, but I mean, it does have the E on the end, which would indicate that you have a long vowel sound. So, yeah. Right? right. I, I did go to That's like, right. we had classic like grammar stuff when I was growing up. I mean, I know they don't bother to do that too much now, but. It's important. No, it's totally... It really is. I mean, Mike, just as a quick digression, I told you I needed an outline for this very reason. But I mean, my daughter who's 18, just turned 18 and just graduate is about to graduate from high school. I, she, I don't think really has any firm grasp of the parts of speech, of basic grammatical rules, except for maybe what she's learned in French, you know, through studying a second language. I mean, it's just like, boom, right out the window, that stuff. I don't know what they're doing with the core curriculum, but it doesn't seem to include the basics. I have one teacher, I had one teacher in eighth grade who gave us a grammar book called Warner's, and it was like, everybody dreaded Rothstein's class, and he was older by the time I got there, and his lot in life was to make sure you left eighth grade understanding all that stuff. Yeah. You know, how, how that worked. Right. I and, had that in seventh grade. We learned how to parse a sentence. Remember doing that? Did you have to do that? Diagram sentences? Oh, yeah. I totally. loved that. I thought it was a riot. <laughs> Who <laughs> else rock has got like the noun and the verb songs? I really I play those for my kids. Yeah, um, right. Anyway, but, so but let's go back have, to food uh, on the hemp seed oil. So yeah, so if we can, if I turned over two to three acres of seed oil from from the ranch here, um, I could provide enough that I now for the oil that every day today we put into our shakes in the morning. Um, the whole family, it's a nutritive superfood, and I don't take my word for it. In the book, I went into the University of Manitoba research into this, mm-hmm. um, which included that your it is. That uh, omega balance, great high protein, high in minerals that are hard for vegetarians and vegans to get, like uh, magnesium. Something, you know, something equivalent to a top. So we could kind of- we could basically live on hemp and crickets, and because I did, I recently did a show with a guy who out in uh, actually in Utah who is uh, creating a cricket bar nutrition bar. And it wow. was like, you know, amazing. I mean, 25 crickets has like, you know, 10 times your daily requirement for omega-3s, blah, 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 and all kinds of minerals and stuff. I was just like, okay. I mean, it's not my favorite idea. But, you know, should we truly run out of water, which it looks like we're going to, especially in the southwest where you are? Um, and by the way, what is with the fracking? Are they serious about fracking in New Mexico? I'll tell you this. It canceled. In, this is this is in Hempound. It canceled Santa Fe's. Uh, New Mexico's plans to put in the kind of biomass combustion plant that I'm suggesting in Hempfound we should do with those with those waving green hands of feet of shining feet 
temp field, we should be um, using uh, community-owned energy plants that combust it in, uh, in an anaerobic way that's very carbon-friendly. They're doing it in Europe. Yeah. And the U.S. Army's buying up these units. So let's, let's get on that. Absolutely. I mean, I think people should be like getting mobilized about this stuff, especially if you live in the Southwest. I mean, I I can't think of anything scarier than what you described as like farmland that is basically looks like the Sahara and where the, the soil is so dry that it just kind of like blows away like the dust bowl. I mean, that was a really that was a very chilling uh, couple of um, moments in the book where it was just like, gee whiz, you guys are really in trouble out there. And and when, when I read in the paper a couple of weeks ago that said that New Mexico is about is like having a, a fracking, a lease run on fracking. I was just like, you got to be kidding me. Like, have they not heard that it uses a lot of water? <laughs> like, where are you going to get the water from, homies? I mean, some crazy Wait, stuff. We just have criminals in front of our state right now. Yeah, um, essentially, but, yes. Um, so the, um, yeah. So um, we've now touched on two of the three elements of tri cropping that I want to see every uh, community in America have. We've touched on the energy side. These gasification units are small as the size of an outhouse, um, growing for the profitable seed oil, mm-hmm. but a cultivar that also allows a fiber harvest. Now, you know, there's 21st century applications like. Um, 3D printing, uh, today hemp fibers already in Mercedes and BMW door panels. Like, it's an incredible fiber. And, of course, textiles. I'm way into hemp clothing, wearing hemp clothing today. Um, Very good. But, but um, I think the construction is going to be the first fiber killer app because it doesn't require that learning curve to be sort of like high-end expert. But it would be great if we get into hemp tech. And on the fiber side, I'd love that. I'd love to see the, the, the clothing mills and South Carolina reopened from South Carolina growing hemp. How wonderful would that be? And stop growing cotton, you know? Yeah, which is very resource intensive, right? I mean, the great thing about hemp, why doesn't it need water? Why is hemp so environmentally friendly? We didn't really like get into that, but let's, let's, because we have to take a break in a second, but I just want to get to that major point. Hemp is environmentally friendly because? It actually, well, we've been living with it for, as humans, for 9,000 years, so it, these seemingly magical qualities are bred into it, obviously, and we bred a plant for, that does things that we want it to do, like we breed bulls and retrievers to retrieve and be friendly to kids, and so it's not so magical to think that, oh, this plant has foot long taproot, so unbelievably erosion controlling that a Nebraska rancher told me that her family used to grow it, and it would so firm their irrigation ditches that no matter how big a flood they had, they were crops were safe, and then it was high-protein feed for the cattle at finishing time in the fall. So mm-hmm. um, it, we bred qualities into the plant that, that we want, and that's where the phytoremediation stuff comes in. Very um, interesting. And as, oh, well, maybe we should wait until after the break, but I want to say the first killer app, I think, on the fiber side is going to be in construction. We're going to use it to, to build our homes, and they're already doing it in Europe. Well, we're going to talk about that in one second, Jack. We're going to play a quick sponsor drop now. And uh, stay with me with Doug Fine, uh, author of Hemp Unbound, uh, the new miracle crop. Today's program has been brought to you by Consider Bardwell Farm. Spanning the rolling hills of Vermont's Champlain Valley and easternmost Washington County, New York, 300-acre Consider Bardwell Farm was the first cheese-making co-op 
in Vermont, founded in 1864 by Consider Stebbins Bardwell himself. Rotational grazing on pesticide-free and fertilizer-free pastures produces the sweetest milk and the tastiest cheese. All of their cheeses are aged on the farm in their extensive system of caves. Consider Bardwell Farm is also a big supporter of Heritage Foods USA's No Goat Left Behind program. No Goat Left Behind is a serious effort launched in 2011 by Heritage Foods USA designed to introduce goat meat to American diners and provide a sustainable end market for dairy animals. For more information, please visit www.considerbardwellfarm.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and we're talking today about hemp uh, and a book that just came out from Chelsea Green. It's called Hemp Unbound. Um, Dispatches from the front lines of the next agricultural revolution. The author is Doug Fine. He's on the line with me today from his home in New Mexico on the Funky Butte Ranch, um, where you are a goat herd, right? You have a goat, because Consider Bardwell has started out as just goats. Do you know that? Do you know those cheese, those cheeses? No. Oh my God, they're fantastic! It's a great. It's actually a fantastic farm. It's run by a really wonderful woman who's, in her spare time, an agent for writers. Um, she's really remarkable herself. Um, but they are an award-winning cheesemaker, and they've been running goats up there for about I don't know, maybe fifteen, twenty years now. Quite a while, anyway. Definitely something to look into uh, in your spare time, Doug. Um, where, so, are they, where are they located again? They're in Vermont. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were starting to talk about uh, construction materials, and one of the things that you focus on in the book is hempcrete, which is a sort of new, um, a, an alternative to concrete, uh, which has a lower carbon footprint and off gases less, et cetera, et cetera. Give us a, a little thumbnail of what hempcrete is all about, and what are the other uh, industrial building uh, uses for hemp? Hemp fibers, I guess, right? Yeah, so the Marks and Spencer Department Store in Britain um, built a flagship block long, huge apartment store, um, outside of London a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. um, out of a material called hempcrete. And it's basically a broad, um, name for hemp fiber based building materials found with something organic. Now, lime can work, and that's what everyone's using now, but there is a sustainability uh, issue with lime. There are, or there are, in some places, at least, and at least as far as today, so there, we may we may want to be looking for alternative natural binders, and there are some. Um, that's currently more what about others. like mycelium from mushrooms? I hadn't even crossed my mind. Could that be used as a as a binder? Well, you know, up in uh, in uh, Troy, New York, there's um there's a really fantastic uh, couple of you know these two kids came out of Polytech Rensselaer. I can't remember their names now, but their name the name of their company is Ecovinate. You should check them out because they okay. are building, they're doing um, building materials made out of mushroom, out of mycelium fiber. So I'm wondering okay. if that's going to be the binder that you use with hemp. I don't know. Apparently it's very, very strong. Go oh, back like into it. my archives and you can listen to the show. I think it was like a year ago. Well, do. That's yeah. awesome. Well, what, what a great solution because I've been addressing this and I, there are answers that are currently more expensive, but to me, it's like versus what? The price of the future of the earth? You yeah. Know? Um, <laughs> um, okay, so uh, back to fiber. I do believe construction is going to be the first killer app. Um, it's, when I interviewed the company that built the Martin Spencer department store, as well as multiple subdivisions in Britain and, and other parts of Europe, like they are, they're, they're starting this concrete revolution in Europe mm-hmm. um, and have 10 years under their belt, and I'm like, what's 
is it a no-brainer? And they said, it's an absolute no-brainer if you have any responsibility at all for the structure after construction. If you're doing anything other than flipping it, it immediately pays off in incredible energy savings because it is more efficient, you know, the R, what we call R value, for instance, an in insulation yeah. than um, uh, pink fiberglass, but, you know, without any of the environmental costs. Or when you're talking about load-bearing, you don't have to heat up load-bearing hempcrete uh, to the temperatures that you do for, for cement and concrete uh-huh. on site, thousands of degrees of energy just on the building site. And then it's carbon negative once it's built. Sequesters carbon from the from the atmosphere of your house. So That's incredible. While you're, just, while you're just hanging out, yeah. And you're just rubbing your legs like a cricket there, aren't you? You're just so happy about this. <laughs> I love that. I loved your whole rap about like what makes American American Americans American is like enthusiasm. <laughs> Yeah, dude, you got that in spades, babe. <laughs> so let's talk for a second about okay. So say farmers start turning over like a thousand acres uh, from corn and soy to hemp, and they do they have to buy special equipment to harvest uh, to, and then there's like a whole process, a bunch of processes you describe: decortication, retting, uh, which was what I called tidying up my house, but you apparently call it like uh, taking, separating the bast from the herd. Um, there's some great words in there. Really enjoyed that. But so take us through a little bit of what it takes to actually turn the plant into, you know, these various usable components. And I thought it was really interesting that one guy you describe has has created a sort of jerry-rigged combine where he harvests the seeds in one sort of pass through a field and then later harvests the stalks for a second. Um, that's what you call dual cropping and tri-cropping? Is that what you mean? Right. Yes, that is what I mean. The tri, the third top after the fiber and seed, the third is the energy application. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you're, so um, th- this this really uh, is another great question, Katie. And um, <laughs> Thanks, I try. So, <laughs> so um, <clears throat> first of all, it, hemp does grow like a weed, mm. um, and it really has incredible biomass per acre, but it is that sheer biomass. When you look at how tightly these plants manage to grow, especially when you're growing for fiber, um, t- how tall they grow. Seed oil plants today are a little different, but I'm voting for migrating to a hybrid where that, that provides both. Uh-huh. Um, and so, in any event, harvesting is no joke when you're talking about that kind of biomass. Um, not so hard for the seeds. That's not rocket science, but... Um, speaking to actual Canadian farmers making a living from this, doing it in the field, it was a learning curve for them because they there used to be like in 1927, International Harvester had a had a combine designed for hemp, but basically wider spaces between very sharp blades because it's a strong fiber you're cutting down yeah. and it's growing real thick. So you, uh, but anyway, so so this fellow Grant Dick in Manitoba, his, his combine caught on fire twice during his first hemp. Harvest because of friction from from you know how copious the you know the, the plant that's going to save us um, you know is is, is uh, it involves ingenuity and adaptation right um, as you try to learn how to how to harvest and that's true because the market demands change too um, I saw that even in the most experienced fiber harvesters in the world today a company called Tenflax I visited their Dutch facility and I held this silky but strong fiber right off the factory floor that's going to go into those BMW and, and Mercedes door panels. Um, they're the, you know, the best producers in the world of, of high-end fiber. As I was leaving their facility, there's like sparks flying and, and, and hammers banging and masks being worn on the far end of the factory. I wander over there and ask the mechanics what's going on, and, and they're 
these rows of giant yellow combines, and they're, they got an order for flower, hemp flower tips from, like, this ridiculously high-end European um, body care maker. That's the kind of thing that's, like, ridiculously tens of thousands of dollars an ounce in, like, you know, some south of France hotel boutique or something like that. And um, <laughs> so it was worth adjusting their harvesters to make this extra harvest, not just the seed and the fiber, but then at the very top of the tips of the flowers, trim those off and somehow cast them in some kind of net so that um, they, they can make a lot of money off this, like, fad in, in body care. <laughs> so we're talking about, like, a body lotion or something that theoretically has incredible properties, which, if you think yeah. about it, I mean, if it's a highly nutritious uh, food product, why, you know, you're absorbing it through your skin, why would it not be good for that? I mean, that makes total sense to me. Uh, it'd be like shea butter or something, right? Oh, I wouldn't. I'm not arguing on the uh, effect. In fact, I should praise the high-end perfumery. Um, you know, during their pause from their test on rabbits or whatever, that they are <laughs> choosing this great thing because it's a fad. It is a great thing. I'm just saying it's really funny that it's being incorporated at you know right. twelve thousand dollars an ounce when we should all be growing it in our backyard. When hemp is actually a weed. Well, you know. I understand that. It's like people spend money on uh, bittersweet when it blooms in the, in New York, and I'm I'm busily ripping it out by the roots as best I can all over my property. So I mean, you know, to each his own, as they say. Um, now you got into this whole hemp uh, story because you were you know riding too too high to fail, um, and you um, you know you 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 were researching the war on drugs, and I I just want to bring up the point uh, two points here that you made in the book. One was that in order to really kickstart, um, you know, hemp's production in this country, we're going to need some sort of subsidization from the government. So that's one thing. And so then the second thing that that occurred to me was that you, you know, you discover this during the war on drugs. And of course, you know, probably 60% of the people who are incarcerated from the war on drugs were people who were like load level pot dealers. And so, um, you know, is hemp going to replace the income derived from the enormous prison complex that we've managed to build and which is obviously making some people very rich? I mean, you know, what, what, what was wrong with the prison thing? Like, why would you want to replace that with a crop? I mean, very and, interesting. Isn't it? It's interesting how the two sides of hemp and cannabis have pushed each other along. Mm. Hempsters who, by their own admission, until a, a year or two ago, until the changes in Colorado and Washington in cannabis law, um, were very were fairly religious about distancing themselves from anything to do with the cannabis plant, and mm. and it was generally false because, like the rest of humanity, many hempsters were were of all forms of the plant. Mm-hmm. Um, but <laughs> cannabis legalization came first and is yeah. now pushing hemp because the DA is looking absurd to say, like, they're going to try and stop hemp now. Right? Yeah, and you After- can't import any seeds. I mean, that whole story <laughs> of, like, the DEA saying, no, we're not going to let you import the seeds because, of course, we've eradicated our own. But if hemp is growing as a weed, as you describe in some of the areas, like in Nebraska, w- why can't we harvest those seeds? What's wrong with them? Well, that's, that's um, a fundamental debate between, on the one hand, what you might call the Darwin argument, you know, the pioneers that settled, you know, the crazy unknowns of a place called Illinois, Wisconsin, Missouri, and mm. created this world-leading hemp industry. They started with 
a handful and a coffee can of whatever seeds they could get, you know, on at the market on the way out of town or whatever it was. Right. Um, and so, and they built a world-leading industry out of that, right? So the, the argument is it's there, in the, despite the eradication you mentioned. We still pay millions of dollars a year to eradicate industrial hemp when, uh, you know, China's president goes and implores its farmers to change from cotton because it has pesticide <laughs> um, impact. Right. Um, but uh, so... Do you think anything, Obama is going to start begging? What was that? Sorry. Do you think Obama is going to start begging farmers to start growing hemp? Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see um, a positive and state public statement about about hemp cultivation. When that Mitch was, McConnell comes out in support of hemp, then I think we know that the tide has turned. Exactly. I mean, it's a, like it's it it's the it's the plant even a Republican can love. <laughs> I, I understand the turning point now when people said to McCarthy, have you no shame, you know, on the on the on the Senate on American panel that where it was over. You couldn't do the witch hunt was over, you couldn't yeah. do it anymore. Yeah. Um the people that were the bullies now have been stood up to and anybody that's still making that argument is just getting shouted down from the right, from the left, from above. Like it's it's over. Give it up because we win, and that's good for America. Yeah. Hemp and cannabis are back. That's good for the economy. That's good, I'd say, as a father for public safety. Um, yeah. And a, a quick note back on the, on the fiber processing on hemp. So we got we talked about – oh, you asked about redding and complications on post-harvest, right? Yeah. So if you, if you do – hemp does require – if you look at hemp harvesting today compared to a 13th century sketch from – medieval Hungary or something like that, um, they look the same. You bundle it up, wow. rotate it for two weeks. It's a fungal battle called redding where you're trying to soften that hard outer bark to get a soluble vast fiber and hurry it within. But if you invest in an expensive decorticator, um, you can do that from day one, strip the, the bark off and put it in your gasification energy facility that you have on hand that you can process now your fiber, seed oil, and create energy-dependent, fossil fuel-free America, uh, community-owned, say goodbye to your grid, uh, right away from day one. So I'm You a are a freaking pinko, man. <laughs> say goodbye to your grid. <laughs> Doug, you are such a breath of fresh air. I just love you. Now, let me ask you this, because unfortunately, we have to close in a minute or two, but... What do you think will happen with big agriculture? Will, um, you know, the big uh, Cargill, like, uh, you know, those guys who are vertically integrated, the Tysons, you know, they're, they subsidize the corn and the soy. Uh, they, they have their own farms. They're growing all that stuff for feed for their animals. You know, it's all the consolidation and vertical integration of the livestock industry. And um, as you have uh, pointed out in your book, this is a very highly nutritious feed. So are are we going to see big agriculture starting to invest heavily in hemp in the coming five years or so? The um, As long as the United States implements what Canada did, which was a prophylactic GMO or genetically modified organism ban for the hemp industry, flat out, day one. This is S359, and I'm hoping everyone will support it. It's a uh, Senate bill that uh, will do the obvious, do what Colorado has already done, remove cannabis from the curfew, remove hemp, sorry, from the curfew, build up back in the Justice Department, yeah, and into where it belongs, agriculture and other food products. Um, if, we, if we can get that done, we need to make sure a GMO ban is there right from the start. Um, 
as Canada has done. You know, we can maybe slip it through the protests of the food industry by saying it's just what Canada's doing. We need we need uniformity. You know, um, that kind of thing. That's what the industry standard is, et cetera, et cetera. As long as we do that, because it requires the Canadian government's advice page for hemp farmers in Canada, they have a grid for every crop and an Excel sheet. And there's a category they think they need to have in ink in every grid, pesticides and herbicides, uh-huh. which is fat. And for hemp, it says none needed. Now, right. it's a little bit more complicated than that when you talk to real farmers, but the bottom line is it does grow like a weed, and there is no need for genetic modification. There is no need for herbicides and pesticides. So I'm fine if big ag wants to pay those kind of prices. I don't know what they're going to do with it, but if it's for America's energy production, I'm all for it. God bless America. Yeah. Well, listen, we have to wrap it up here. Uh, so let's um, tell people about your website and uh, let them know how they can uh, learn more about hemp and hemp production, and maybe they can get into hemp farming themselves if they have a few acres. And if they're investor types, um, think about investing in these community-owned uh, tri-cropping facilities. Uh, I've, you know, every live event I've done for Hemp Found, um, folks uh, have come up to me and said, that, you know, they're, they're MBAs and we're looking where to invest. Said, oh, let's get those gasification units wholesale of the farmers. So the pieces are really in play, and folks can contact me at dougfine.com. Also has information on Hemp Found and the link to the book, which is available everywhere. Um, there is a recent uh, C-SPAN airing of a hemp-bound event. If you want to bring it to your community, uh, hit the contact button on my website and follow me on Twitter at Organic Cowboy. That's Organic Cowboy. Two C's all together. Got it. Thanks a lot, Doug. You've been great. This is a really fun show. I really enjoyed it, and I really recommend the book, uh, Hemp Unbound. Uh, Check it out, folks. And uh, we'll be back next week. Uh, We'll be talking about Lethal But Not Legal, another new book uh, by a professor from Hunter College uh, about all the additives in our food that really we don't know anything about. So we'll see you next week, and have a great week in the meantime. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye now. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.